Okay, we'll just um, start off with a word of prayer. God, our Father, we uh, again just pause to acknowledge that you are the God who has inspired Scripture. Uh, that through your Spirit, you uh, enable people to write things which recorded for us uh, your, the words of your Son. And we pray that as we come to those words now, that, that same Spirit might enable our understanding and uh, fire our hearts that we might see how we might best be obedient to your words. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Elisha was dying. He didn't need the gift of prophecy to see that. But so significant a person had Elisha become in the life of God's people, Israel and Judah, that as soon as he heard the news, the king himself hurried down to the old man's sickbed. And as he lay there, quite weak and quite feeble, Elisha said to uh, King Joash, I want you to open the eastward window. Pick up a bow and a quiver of arrows. Choose one of those arrows. Put it in the, uh, in the bow and draw the string. This is kind of a strange request, but um, the king did as he'd been asked. And then the old man reached out and put his hand on the king's and said, Now, release the arrow. Shoot. And the king let the string go and the arrow flew out the window and Elisha cried out from his sickbed, The Lord's arrow of victory, victory over the Syrians. Now take up the rest of the arrows and strike the ground with them for your victories over the Syrians from now on. Maybe it all seemed a bit kind of theatrical for uh, the king or maybe he thought the old guy was losing it. Um, but for whatever reason, he gave a sort of a, yeah, okay, bang, bang, bang sort of response. And the old prophet heaved a deep sigh and said, only three strikes? You should have done five or, or six. And then you would have been victorious five or six times. The power of the Syrians over you would have been broken completely. As it is, all you get is three. And further along in that chapter, as we read the summary of international relationships at that particular time, we're told three times Joash defeated the king of Syria and he regained the lost cities of Israel. And you can see the point there, can't you? On first glance, it looks like a good thing. You're encouraged or you, you might want to say, hey, that's pretty good. Good man, Joash. All those cities that the Syrians took, you got them back for us. Well done, top stuff. He got back the lost cities, but that was all he did. The Syrians' home territory, the, the power base they operated from, that stayed intact. That quirky little story from the depths of the Old Testament show a couple of things, but what I want us to focus on tonight is that it's a classic illustration of opportunity it's been lost. A God-given opportunity is presented to a man and, and any number of guesses as to why uh, it happened, but for some reason he let that chance pass by. The opportunity was lost. As you've heard, the part of the Bible we're fo focusing on tonight isn't so much uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to spend time instead in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 16, mostly the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, although we can't look at that and do it justice 
without noting a few things that go on in the rest of the chapter as well. But before we start out on that, there's three things I want to touch on briefly about this part of, of Luke's Gospel that I think flavour our understanding of what it is we're looking at and might be that it actually affects how we want to apply what we see when we try and see how it's relevant to our own circumstances. The first is kind of a big picture thing. The background for this particular story, and indeed this whole chapter, and even more, this whole section of the Gospel, is Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. Sometimes when you think about Jesus and the Pharisees, we kind of get the image of these two opposing sides where they're just butting heads all the time. But I don't think Jesus actually wants simply to win arguments. You know, he doesn't want to do that so much as he does to open people's eyes. You see, he wants the Pharisees as well to see. He wants them to understand. He wants them in the kingdom. But if they won't be honest with themselves, then he'll open the eyes of other people by bouncing off the Pharisees. So in the telling of these parables that we're looking at in Luke 16 tonight, Jesus isn't just spouting off in a vacuum, as it were. No, he's saying what he's saying over and against what the Pharisees are saying and doing. And that will affect things for us as we look at it and seek to understand it and then seek to apply it. Second thing that I just wanted to point out is that this Jesus-Pharisee thing starts off, I think, back in chapter 13. And the story that we're looking at now, this one about the rich man and Lazarus, actually finishes that section. It brings it to a conclusion. And closing statements, whether we're talking about closing statement in a letter or in a debate or in a book or story, closing statements will often have the effect of giving direction to what's gone before. They help to make clear what it is that it's all really about. I remember when I was in infant school, we had to take turns in standing in front of the class and telling a story. And there were three or four standards that came up uh, over and over again every day when someone stood up. It would be one of the four. And one of those four was the, the hare and the tortoise. Uh, at the end of the story, every time it was told, the final statement was, slow and steady wins the race. And if you didn't actually say that bit, you know how it is when you're telling kids stories and they listen to everything that you say, and even though it's a story they've heard before, you've got to get every little bit right. Um, parents know that. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you get corrected, even if they can't read. But uh, if you didn't say the slow and steady wins the race bit, you hadn't told the story properly. As I was preparing this, it actually occurred to me that the real moral of that story is overconfidence and stupidity loses the race. But that's a, a different thing. Closing statements make a point. They give direction. And this parable, the whole parable uh, of the rich man and Lazarus, is a closing statement on this Jesus-Pharisee section. Third, there's a sort of a, a cohesion to this chapter, chapter 16, the whole bit. You might have noticed that both parables, as they are read to us, the one about the shrewd manager and uh, this one now, start off with the same words. There was a rich man who... 
Now that's a clue. You might be thinking, it's not a clue, that's just being inventive. But remember, this, the chapter that we're looking at now is immediately preceded by one that is very much a tied-together chapter. In Luke 15, there are three parables. There's a parable of the lost sheep, a parable of the lost coin, a parable of the, parable of the lost son, one after another. Those three lost things, their stories very obviously belong together. So today's chapter, the very next one, um, uh, is not a one-off. But if you think back to those three in chapter 15, those parables aren't really about the lost things, are they? They're about what I'll call the owner of those lost things. Uh, if you had a hundred sheep, Jesus starts off uh, by saying to his, uh, his uh, opponents. And then, then he says, if a woman had ten silver coins, that's how the second one kicks off. A man had two sons, is how the third one starts. The shepherd, the owner, the father. In each case, at the beginning of the story, the opening words tell us what he's on about in that story, who we need to ultimately focus on if we're going to really get, get what it is that he's on about in that story. So when the story that we're looking at today, now, like the other one in chapter 16, starts off, there was a rich man who... Who is the story about? Whose words and attitudes and actions are we meant to take special note of so we can see what it is that Jesus is trying to get across? In both cases, it's the rich man. Both parables in chapter 16, whoever else is in the story, whatever else they do, when you get to the end, look at the rich guy. There may be other bits in the stories that are instructive, interesting, challenging, all that. But if you don't look at the rich bloke, you miss the most important bit. Look at the rich bloke. That's a bit of a surprise when we think back to the, uh, uh, the first one that we had in our initial reading, the one about the, the slack manager, because all we're told about his boss uh, towards the end is the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And people often kind of slide over that because it doesn't seem to make sense. Why would you commend someone who's just pulled the wool over your eyes and pulled a swifty on you and cost you money that your debtors were supposed to pay you? And so people will often kind of toss that into the too hard basket. But that's the very thing Jesus wants us to focus on. Remember, there is a rich bloke who, more than money, the rich man recognises that, uh, that the worth of shrewdness, of seeing an opportunity and making the most of that opportunity. As far as a rich man is concerned, a shrewd person can always turn things to a profitable end. And even if there is no opportunity, a shrewd person will pretty well find a way to make one. A dummy is going to lose whatever he's got, even if he's got a lot. Look at the prodigal son. But, uh, but in the case of a shrewd person, they will do what they can with opportunities. And that's what these parables are about, opportunity. Leave the rich man out and you're kind of left floundering. That doesn't really come out very much at all. But we're not majoring on the first parable, really. We're just seeing how it sets things up 
for the parable we want to focus on, the uh, rich man and Lazarus. We've just been saying that in both of these stories, we have to look at the rich guy. Well, in today's parable, what do we see about this rich guy? For a start, he has it all, doesn't he? He has the best of clothes, we're told, purple and fine linen. Back a bit, Michael. Too soon. Thank you. <laughs> purple and fine linen. Um, purple dye was uh, obtained from the ink of a particular shellfish that was hard to get to, and even when you got to them, you could only harvest a tiny amount from each creature. And so you had to get a lot of them to actually have a, an appreciable amount of dye worth anything. So the purple dye was worth a lot, and purple-coloured material was extravagantly expensive, very rare, and the rich man was clothed in it. It wasn't just the colour, though, also fine linen. See, for the average person, the people like you and me, uh, their clothes were homemade. Uh, the, uh, the material was, uh, was put together on a, on a loom, but even the actual thread itself was made by, uh, by being spun on crude wooden implements at home. And so the clothes, when they all sort of came together, they were serviceable enough, they did the job, but they were kind of rough and scratchy. Not for our Mr Moneybags, though. No chafing or itchy garments for him. He had the best of clothes. And he also had the best of food. That's how it's described. Sumptuous is how one particular Bible version puts it. Caught on blur stuff. He did not just eat at the master chef kitchen, he owned the thing. And you might have noticed as well, not only was the quality superb, but the quantity was lavish in its proportions as well. Other people ate. He feasted. That's how that other version I mentioned a moment ago has it. The best of food in obscene proportions on special occasions. No. Once a week. No. Every day. So he dresses well, he eats well, and this guy lives well. Now this is a tiny detail, but what else does he have? What else has he got? He's got a thanks, Michael. He's got a gate. And you might say, big deal, I got one of them, or I had one of them in my last house anyway. But when you stop and think about it, in those times you only had a gate if you had a yard, and you only had a yard if you didn't need every square metre of ground on your pot to actually squeeze your dwelling onto. And, and if you had someone that you paid to look after the yard, or more likely had slaves who tend it for you. What's more, you only had a gate if you had a wall, and you only had a wall if you had something worth protecting in the first place, possessions of value. So what we have here is a fellow who in the things of this world lacks for nothing. He's got, got it all in excess, far more than he could ever need. The second man in this story, what's he got? Well, he's not merely poor, is he? He's, uh, he's not just someone who struggles to earn a living. 
He's a beggar. He depends on others to provide for him. But if you note the detail, you can see something of the extent of his poverty. Think about the person Jesus puts in this story that he creates to tell. And let me ask, does this beggar go day by day and sit at the rich man's gate to beg? He doesn't, you'll notice. He is laid there. And I gather laid is putting it politely. The uh, same word can also mean tossed or dumped. But in that society, who gets carried around from place to place and then put down to beg and left there? Well, people who can't walk for themselves. So he's poor, he begs, and he's crippled. There's another detail. The rich man, we're told, is covered in fine clothes. When you look at the rich man, that's what you see. That's what catches your attention. With the poor man, though, there's another covering that catches your attention, something different. He's covered not with fine clothes, but with sores. And this isn't just an appearance thing we're talking about. This is, this is pain. This is smell. This is comments made by passing people. I mean, people wouldn't make disparaging comments to someone who was helpless as they were passing by, would they? Not much. Uh, and, and, uh, and while the rich man has the best food in abundance every day, see what the poor man has. See, if you're making up the story yourself, if you're going to try and set up a contrast between these two guys, what would you have decided to have the poor man eating compared to the rich man? Small amounts of plain food every now and then? No. The uh, man in Jesus' story has even less than that. Thanks, Michael. Just a few table scraps, maybe. Uh, stuff that was kind of on its way to the garbage bin. No, Lazarus gets even less than that. Lazarus gets the dream of a few table scraps. As the garbage goes out, he gets the wish, the unfulfilled wish, that maybe just a few bits might fall off and come his way. So this is a story of contrasts. On the one hand, there's somebody who has just so much not just rich, but he's obscenely uh, wealthy and excessively indulgent. And on the other hand, there's someone whose need is, is immense, huge. If you had nothing, you'd be well off compared to the poor man. There's a couple of other details that are important for us to pick up on as well. Where was the poor man laid? You've already said the answer, haven't you? By the rich man's gate which means the rich man cannot fail to see him as he comes and goes. No point pretending I didn't notice, I didn't know he was there. And the rich man actually gives the game away later on when he's asking Abraham for a favour, when he says, send Lazarus to do this, send Lazarus to do that. How does he recognise Lazarus? How does he know who Lazarus is, know his name? Because he saw him every day, because he knew that he was there, because he knew what he was, who he was, what he was like. So here is a picture of opportunity missed. No doubt at all about one man's capacity. No doubt at all 
about the other man's need. And no doubt whatsoever that this situation was seen and recognised. And just to damn the rich man even more, just to highlight even further how uncaring he really was. As the poor man sits there by the rich man's gate, he does receive some care. He does receive some ministry. There is at least some expression of compassion towards him, isn't there? Why? The dogs. This isn't a hunger thing, a taste thing. If they were hungry, they'd have taken a bite. When a dog licks a wound, it's done as first aid, it's done to comfort, it's done to heal. It's instinctive, I know. The dog didn't take a first aid course. But that's the point. Even the dogs, out of reflex, out of instinct, care for him. It's just what you do. The uh, mongrel pack that roams the streets offer more comfort to the rich man than, than the rich man, I should say. And in doing that, they show him up for the cold and heartless and selfish individual that he really is. And there is another way as well that these two men, men stand in contrast to each other. It's something that kind of stands out when you know, but perhaps you may or may not have noticed it. One of them has a name. And that doesn't just make Lazarus special in this parable. It makes him unique amongst all the stories Jesus told. If you do a search and, and on Jesus' parables and look up the list and take the time to read them all, in no other parable does a character receive a name. Do you think that might be significant? Do you think what his name is matters? Especially when you realise that in that time, in that place, names had meanings. And those meanings were meant to, in some way, be appropriate for the person that was bearing them. When you look at this fellow, his name's meaning, the gist of it is, God is my helper. And that makes sense because God is the only one that poor old Lazarus looks to as the only one who can help him because no one else is going to. The name says it all. Lazarus commits himself to God. And he dies. Now in the telling of that story, that is not a tragedy in itself. It's something that happens to all of us, or will happen to all of us. All of Jesus' hearers at that time went through it. Jesus himself did. Um, but it's what comes after that matters. He dies, and his soul receives an angelic escort to glory. Many years ago, I was taking my daughter to school one day, and we came to an intersection where the traffic lights turned red very quickly. Uh, and it seemed strange because the people the other way were, had red lights too, and the light just stayed red. What was going on? You know those sort of things you think, oh, they're mucking up, should I just beat the others and get across? But suddenly a motorbike cop came zooming up and occupied a place in the middle of the intersection and put his hands up. Wait. Moments later, a big black limo came uh, down, no flags on it, no markings, and it passed through the intersection in front of us. There were two... Traffic cop, two motorbike cops uh, ahead, riding abreast, and two behind. And so they just went past us. And as soon as they'd gone through the intersection and disappeared, the first one that, that had uh, put his hands up 
he went zooming off after them and shortly after that the lights turned green and everything was back to normal again. Who was in the car? I don't know. But someone important was in the car. Someone who mattered had just gone by. We're no doubt about that. The escort they received and the treatment they got told us that. Lazarus dies and he receives an angelic escort and on arrival he's greeted with open arms by the revered father of the nation himself. Seen as a nobody for his whole life, Lazarus is in ultimate and eternal reality a somebody. He matters. He truly matters. The rich man dies and he gets something too. He gets a burial. That's what he gets. That's all he gets. Next time you see him, he's in a, a not-so-happy place. There's obviously still parts of this parable that I could work through, but just for now I want to draw back a little bit and, and, and broaden the, uh, the, the strokes. I've said that the parables here in chapter 16 are about opportunity or, or shrewdness in terms of the first one. That is to say, recognising the path that leads to your best advantage and at long term, and then making sure that you are on that path. And I've also said that to get our focus right with these stories that we've been told, we have to watch the rich guy. Now, if all we had was the first of the two parables and nothing else, we might decide that Jesus is actually pulling our attention, as he does in other places, to the way the pursuit and possession of riches blinds people to what is of ultimate value. Uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's going to say that in just a couple of chapters' time. And, and, uh, and that's fine, but um, we're, we're kind of pushed in that direction also when we look at the, the parable from tonight and see that the bad guy is a rich man. And you think, well, maybe. But to end there is to stop short. It misses the real point. So you remember that the Pharisees are a constant presence over these chapters. And remember, yes, the Pharisees were lovers of money, that's true, but they were already wealthy in another way. That's where that funny little bit that we didn't actually read in either of our readings tonight, between the two parables, the bit that the NIV translators don't know what to do with, and they just label it as additional teachings, that's where that particular thing points us. It's not an additional teaching. It actually is part of the whole. It all fits together. It's part of the message. And it's also where Abraham's words to the rich man at the very end of the parable today, that's where those words point us as well. They insist that we go there because the Pharisees, more than anybody else in the place, apart from Jesus himself, are rich in their knowledge of God's word. Moses and the prophets, it's referred to um, in both those sections. A common herd that the Pharisees looked down upon, uh, didn't think much of, the everyday people that Jesus appealed to and before him John the Baptist appealed to, those people were stampeding their way into the kingdom of God. What Jesus was proclaiming, they wanted a part of it. They wanted to be in on it. But they were like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says to the Pharisees, in effect. He says to them, look, the word of God is still the word of God. 
That's not going to change. And you guys, you guys have Moses and the prophets. You are rich. So feed them, shepherd them, look after them. They are, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know their right hand from their left. And you've got so much. And so as you look at it, you think, well, we don't have Pharisees today. Where is the rich man that Jesus was referring to in our generation? I think there's a few determinative questions we can ask. Who has abundant access to God's word, not just one copy, but translation after translation uh, in, and, and freely available. Who is able every week to come uh, and feed on good, sound, uh, heart-moving exposition of that word? Who has access to book after book that opens up God's word and explains spiritual principles? Who has opportunity to gather together with others who are on the same journey and spend time working through God's word to understand it better? and to be informed on what walking a straight path is. Who, more than any generation in history, is uh, by, by, by simply going online has access to resources that our forebears could never even have imagined? Who is the rich man? I guess you can work out where I'm going with that. We are the rich man. We are. But the good thing is we are the rich man this side of the funeral, where the rich man with opportunity open to us, still there, where the rich man with the chance of showing that we actually are genuinely members of the kingdom of God. Please don't be offended when I say that. I know there will be any number here who will be doing that already. What Paul describes as working out your own salvation. But we can always do it better. No, I can there's always opportunities we should have taken and there's always opportunities that we should be taking. And if you've been enjoying all the goodies God's got to give but you haven't really started giving out yet, then look for opportunities. Pray for open eyes to, to see those opportunities when they come. Open ears to hear the, the door knock of those opportunities and boldness to take it when it comes. And if you happen to be saying, well, I don't think I'm that rich with knowledge of God's word. I'm still pretty, pretty shallow on that. The good news is there's a different sort of opportunity for you because this very week we're starting uh, Jesus for the Curious uh, on Tuesday night here in the church, half past seven, and for the, follow for the three weeks after that as well. So uh, there's, there's opportunities for all uh, abounding. Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we thank you that as we stand this side of eternity, as we say, stand this side of the grave, you continue to give us opportunities to bring to bear the things that we know and to get to know those things better. We pray that you would keep our eyes open. We pray that you would keep our ears open. We pray that you would give us both sensitivity and wisdom that we might be able to make the most of the things you give us for the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. Amen. Ah, I, I'll leave this bit. Okay, so I gather it's question time. This is in, I haven't been up here for just one of these before, so. 
Give me five seconds. Halfway through your one. Ah, that's. <laughs> can you recommend a toothbrush? Sorry? As a dentist, can you recommend a toothbrush? Toothbrush. You can face the other way if you want to. No, do no, that. no. Um, did you fed him? Yeah, why not? <laughs> we, when I went through uni, we always used to say Oral B, but nowadays there's been so much research on toothbrushes. You go and look at all of them, and they all look like like E-type Jaguar versions of a toothbrush. So there aren't too many quick ones now. Just, just don't get just don't get a hard one. That's all. Is that all I'm getting? <laughs> okay. Carry on. I didn't really focus on it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So, um, in that first bit that we didn't really focus on, um, it says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when, you, when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Um, using the worldly wealth to gain friends, is that talking about buying your friend or is that like winning people over to Jesus? I think it's it's using worldly wealth is is a broader thing than just money. There's money in the parable, but I think for us it's broader than that. And so it's using the things that you have and the things you have access to, and maybe the things that you treasure, whatever that might be, um, and and being ready to use those things for God's glory, not just for your enjoyment. Okay, and, and when you do those, when you start doing that, uh, it glorifies God. The benefit of it, benefit is that um, God also is pleased and kind of glorifies you as well. Steve. Yeah. So. Uh, divorce and re and um, remarriage and adultery and all yeah. that in the uh, middle of look, nowhere in verse yeah. eighteen. You 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 can ask that question and you'll get a whole lot of different answers. My answer is this: um, I think remembering that the the place of the Pharisees in this is really crucial that they were in the background, and um, the Pharisees as as well as being lovers of money and all that sort of stuff. They were guys who knew the Lord. Jesus gives that away when he, he talks about um, uh, knowing the law of Moses and, and not a bit of the law disappearing and all that sort of thing. One of the problems with the Pharisees was that because they knew the law so well, they were able to, to turn it to their advantage whenever they wanted to. And one of those classic advantages, uh, as a matter of fact, um, the, the, the passage the passage in Mark 8, I think it is, where Jesus, it's a fuller version of, of Jesus talking about divorce and it kind of informs this, but this re informs that backwards as well. Um, this is only one verse. Uh, and, and so the Pharisees were able to, to, to be kind of tricky and, and if they didn't want a wife, they could actually know what, which loopholes to use to get rid of this one so they could go and get another one. Um, I don't think personally what Jesus is talking about here is to say that you must never remarry after you are divorced. Jesus, I, I think, is, is concerned for the Pharisees' practices of, of having someone else that they wanted on the side, so getting rid of this one so they could have that one. And I think whether you're a Pharisee or not, I, I don't think that's right. Um, 
But if you're someone who, for whatever reason, is divorced, and there are all sorts of reasons that divorce has to happen, um, and oftentimes it's totally out of the control of, of, of somebody. Someone leaves them or, or, they, or they're being abused or, or whatever it might be. But there can be a lot of reasons for divorce which, though sad, are kind of inevitable and out of your control. And, um, and if that happens and then down the track somewhere you find someone who, is, who, who you want to marry, I don't think that's what Jesus is addressing. I, I think it's the getting divorced in order to go with this one that he's, that he's talking about. Uh, and that's a Pharisee, a little bit of Pharisee tricking that he's... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But as I say, there, are, there is a range of sort of ways of looking at those, but that's my way of looking at it. Well, we know of another one in the... Oh, I think so. Well, it, 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 may have, it may have been that Jesus... We don't know the answer to this. It may have been that Jesus used it because of his mate. Um, and, and, but, but as I say, the, the, I think the significant thing is, is that he actually used a name. Um, most of his... Well, all the other parables, he, he could have used a name, someone, but he never does. And, and you, you will see... The traditional retellings of this, sometimes they try and actually give the rich man name and call him Dives, which is just the Latin word for, work, for, for rich. Um, and, and they say they call it the parable of Dives and Lazarus, but that is to miss, out, miss the point completely. Thanks, Graham.